CabanaDeprived.com is proud to present Top 8 Magic Podcast with Michael J. Flores and Brian David Marshall. Brought to your ears thanks to FaceToFaceGames.com. Hi everybody, Brian David Marshall here for Top 8 Magic. I know Michael J. and I have been doing a pretty good job of trying to keep to a weekly schedule of recording. Uh, dramatic departure from previous years. But uh, I'm actually out of town this week. Uh, I'm in San Francisco. Uh, I'm not in New York. I'm I'm not with Mike. But I happen to be here with Magic the Gathering Pro Tour Hall of Famer Zvi Moshowitz. And Z and I have spent a lot of time this week talking about games and magic and all this other stuff. And the topic of his Pro Tour uh, win at Pro Tour Tokyo has come up a couple times. And there's just some some really cool stuff that happened there. And We also might even get to, uh, with Factor Fiction being reprinted in Modern Horizons, uh, Zvi was reminiscing about some of his favorite Factor Fictions in history. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Zvi. I don't know. It's been a long time since you've been on the Top 8 Magic podcast. I don't remember being on it, so it must be a very long time. I think you've been on it incidentally. It would be shocking if I wasn't at some point. (laughs) I'm probably being vastly underused. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, So Factor Fiction... You know, we we talked a little bit about this card um, being reprinted in Modern Horizons. A, do you think this card has a place in Modern? Like, it's it hasn't been legal in Modern before, but like this is a card with a lot of history. But like, is is does this a card that can find a spot? I think it's going to be close. Yeah, I, I feel like the decks that want it are probably like Blue White Control, and otherwise, like if you want it, just never tap mana but you still want a way to pull ahead. It's a reasonably efficient way of doing that. It fills your graveyard, gets you five, you know, gets you five cards deeper into your deck. So there's a chance, but the power level on the cards in Modern now and the mana curves so absurd. Like four is the very top of so many of these decks. You know, and it's not clear. Like There's some other things you think about, like maybe in the three-color Valka decks, like they have enough mana, and sometimes you're just, Basically impulsing, looking for <laughs> your primeval titan or your shapes gift, and other times you want, you know, as many mana sources as possible, and then you lay out the factor fiction, and they don't know which one it is. So if they four one you, you might take the four and just laugh at them, and if they don't four one you, then you just get a great deal. Right. I mean, fact factor fiction is one of the cards that really has opened up some of the real game theory elements of magic over the years. You know, we, we've, we saw, um, Carlos Romau, I believe, uh, tweeting about his five zero splits mm-hmm. to trick people into blood O thing, which I believe inspired me to do something like that, uh, to Scott McCord once, which I considered a major victory, but I'm uh, sad. I've never gotten to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you kind of Hollywood them a little bit. You're like, whatever. I'm so far behind. Five lands or zero cards, whatever. And then you blood oath them. But um, what was what was your story for uh, for Factor Fiction? It goes back to what Pro Tour Chicago. Yeah, Pro Tour Chicago. So even though we were pretty sure that we wanted to go a different direction than playing Factor Fiction, we spent a significant portion of our playing time figuring out how to divide Factor Fictions because it was a new card, and we knew this was going to be an underutilized trick. So I'm playing with the Fires deck, and I'm playing essentially for top eight. And I'm, up, I'm playing the Fires deck against a white-blue control deck, 
So essentially, he's got story circles, which with enough white mana, just leave me pretty cold. I have a handful of removal spells and one obliterate available to me. And he's got Wrath of God. And he's relying on these two cards to do a ton of work. Like, the rest of his deck doesn't really do it against me. But these two cards are really powerful. So he's pretty clearly representing that he doesn't have either of them because he would have played them already. He's being beat down. And he casts Factor Fiction. And he turns over Story Circle, Wrath of God, Absorb, Counterspell, Factor Fiction. Now, I want to interrupt you for one second. This is 19 years ago, right? This is yes. two th- year 2000. Um, Pro to Chicago, when he says Fires deck, he means Fires of Yavamaya. Um, story Circle, something that functions similar to a Circle of Protection. But what's amazing to me here is that 19 years later, you can recall the details of this factor fiction vividly. Yeah, there are certain things you never forget. It's always been one of my skills to be able to, after the tournament, just quote back exactly how important moments went and exactly how games were structured. And I don't remember that many of them 20 years later, but <laughs> this one I'm never going to forget. So the key here is if he takes Story Circle, I lose. If it's 4-1 and he takes Story Circle, it's Curtains. I am on roughly a two-outer or some massive set of set of runner-runners. But because he's like got a bunch, handful of cards, he's probably got counter spells before I try to overweight the board. He's got... Story Circle requires you to use white mana, but he's got enough. He can play it, take one more hit, go down to five, be fine. I can't let him have Story Circle. I can't let him know that. So, so, so if you put it now in a 4-1 split, if you say four cards here, Story Circle here, you are telling him that the only thing that matters to you is this story circle. Right. And it's worth giving him these four cards. I am represent- I'm representing that story circle was the card I care about, that I want him to take Wrath of God instead of story circle, or that I'm bluffing this in order to fool him, or I just realized his hand is full, and if he takes four cards, it doesn't actually matter. So I can just do that. But so this is level one, right? So I, I can bluff. I can either put the four with the story circle, but then he'll just probably take the four cards because four cards is great. I can put them with the wrath of God, but then I'm worried I'll give the game away because it makes sense that the story circle could just leave me cold. So I think to myself. So the first thing I do, I take the two white cards and I put them in separate piles and leave the other three cards in the middle to make it clear is the choice between wrath of God and story circle because he knows that and he knows that I know that. So I'm representing that I'm doing this in a straightforward, honest manner, and I just like, well, there's a crowd, and he's here, and I don't like misleading opponents when it's not necessary. I like to develop a good rapport. So I put these two cards out, and we all smile. I sit there representing the other three cards. And so I'm also representing that I don't care that much about which one it is, right? Like, I'm representing that it's close, because I haven't just slammed the ball to the center. I think this is close. But mostly bugging myself time to think. And I think to myself, okay, his hand is full. doesn't really matter how many cards he takes, and he also kind of knows that. But more importantly, Factor Fiction is the deck he's chosen to play. Factor Fiction is the, hot, the new hotness that's causing him to want to play the white control. So, like most Factor Fiction players, he probably vastly overestimates how much Factor Fiction is worth. It's a great card, but is it worth two hard counterspells? Not unless you're about to run out of cards. Not in this circumstance. So... I think to myself, okay, I have to make him think that I want him to take the story circle and still get him to take the Wrath of God. So what I do is I put the Factor Fiction with the Wrath of God alone in a two-card pile. 
<laughs> where he won't have to dis we won't have to discard, and he can wrath. And I put the two counter spells, absorb and counter spell, with story circle. So it's the better pile by a mile. But he doesn't realize this. He thinks probably think I have to discard when you get pile. He gave me the two less good cards as opposed to the one good card. He's dividing them roughly fairly. This is a clean answer. I'll have a, raff, a fact of fiction to refuel after the raft, so I won't just be cold when I'm tapped out after the raft. He takes the raft with the fact of fiction. He rafts. I untap. I drop a new threat. I pour. I Rashad and poured his land. He fact he has to take his last turn to fact of fiction into nothing. Doesn't find one of the you know six or seven cards left in his deck that actually get him out from under that. Because I had to get cast another card and force him to counterspell or fact of fiction. He just dies. I move on to the top eight. <laughs> <laughs> how how many? events like that can you remember from your career is that something that that's a, a really like unique moment in terms of like applying game theory to the decisions in a game in a, in a very successful way i think that's why it stuck with me with so many details i think a lot of the the details have blurred after so long i can tell you roughly what was happening or like the very like singular moment of what happened but not this level of context if i didn't write it down if it wasn't in a tournament report or anything like that so this is pretty unique like the second m most memorable uh, factor fiction that I, I can think of that i cast was just in the semifinals of tokyo i'm up against metafall and we're just in a mid game and he's playing the red green deck and i'm playing the solution the white blue the white blue deck and i factor fiction i just turn over five creatures <laughs> and he just looks at me and says that's the worst thing that's ever happened to me <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I don't remember exactly which five creatures. He divides it three, two, and I take the three pile. And I know, yeah. I know three seconds that I'm taking whichever three cards he gives me. And right. he kind of knows it too. <laughs> but it's, it's all good. He'd led a pretty blessed life to that point, I guess. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I guess you've led a good life. Yeah. And, and the funny part about this, of course, is no. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, say a, a uh, storied character from Magic's past. Yes. Um, talk to me about the solution because I, I think so. That's uh, what year is that that you that you win Pro Tour Tokyo? That's two thousand one. Yeah, two thousand one. Two thousand one. Block. So this this is you're actually working with a super team. You know, we talked a lot. We've I've certainly talked a lot about the emergence of super teams over you know the last ten plus years on the Pro Tour. It was something that had kind of gone away, but you were part of like the last big wave of large playtest teams before yeah, that. Right. It wasn't so, so I thought of us as a super team not so much because we were that big. It wasn't like the jumble which was like half the good half the good players at that pro tour were on the same team playing the same deck. Which, which, is, which pro tour is that? That was uh New Jersey, the one that I Oh yeah, that's, the other, that's your top top eight eight, yeah. academy where they sometimes called pro tour New York mostly called pro tour Secaucus. Let's <laughs> let's face it, it's not New York. <laughs> and just, the deck was everywhere on day two because they found one of the, the best builds of the naturally, like, central deck to the format, and they just blew everybody away because they also had a lot of the best players. And here, like, we didn't want too many players because back then, first of all, if you have too many copies, then everyone will just scout you instantly because everyone's going to see one of you. Every team's going to know what you're playing. They'll have plenty of chances to observe exactly what card you have, what your cyborg strategies are, and you're going to actively select the field against you. Because the decks that beat you will keep beating different teammates, and the decks that lose and the decks that lose to you will keep getting blown out, and they won't be there in the middle, near the end of day two. So you don't want too many copies; they actively hurt you. 
So what we did was we wanted to keep up a quality of our team much more than anything else. So this meant that we formed Godzilla. So the idea was um, I was a you member formed of Team Godzilla. The team was called Godzilla. For Protor Tokyo. Yes. <laughs> so not an accident. So the idea was that we, we had this team called Mog Squad, which I had joined, but Mog Squad had a bunch of players in it who weren't really good at building decks, who didn't put in the kind of work that we needed them to put in. Uh, most of whom understood this. They were kind of legacy characters, a bunch of friends, like Jakob Slemmer, Sigurd Eskeland. Good guys. I, I liked them a lot. But they were never going to be building the next big thing. So we needed to keep the size down. So when we got the opportunity to take the English group, um, John Almorod, Ben Richardson, and um, Warren? Warren Marsh. Warren Marsh. And bring them in, it was like, well, we can't keep the chaff on this team, the people who aren't pulling the same level of weight. And then we could, instead we can bring in the best people from the European Alliance. I, I like how your chaff is a world champion and a pro tour champion. Yes. <laughs> oh, but that's the worst kind of chaff. I, so Sigurd Estlin won pro tour New right. York and Jakob Slemmer won worlds in 97. Right? Absolutely. So Mercadian Mosques, right? The, the rebel pro tour. They come to my house, because this pro tour is in New York. Yes. And I sit the, them down at, at my the armory, right? I sit them down at my kitchen table and I teach them how to play the waters deck that I have built over the course of the last month and tuned to a finish of its life. That they have had no you know, no role in playtesting. We didn't expect them to. We understood that they were gonna have no role in playtesting. And I teach them step by step, here's how all the interactions work in the only two matchups that matter, which are the mirror and rebels, because everything else you can just play. It's fine, you just win. And they understand this, and they're excellent players. So Nikolai top six teams, and Sigurd wins. <laughs> and Sigurd actually makes the deck slightly better. He has a counterspell instead of a brainstorm, which turns out to be correct, and he plays it really well, especially in the end. Like, he becomes amazing. But, like, that's exactly what you don't want. You don't want these players who didn't help you build the great thing to then be selecting the field against you and advertising what you're doing and just be two of the... 13 people that were ahead of me in the standings when things finished. Sure. Right? Like, that's all terrible. <laughs> I finished top 16 of that pro tour, and it's like, I'm happy about that. I'm glad Sigurd won. But, in fact, uh, I was sitting with Warren Marsh during that top eight, and Warren built the Rebel deck that made it to the final. Oh, no. No, it wasn't Warren. It was, um... Now, Warren's the one who played it, right? Like, it was um, Ben... No, it was Ben Richardson I was sitting with. Yeah. And so we're talking about the strategy. Ben built the Rebel deck, and I built the Waters deck, while the people we gave the decks to were out there being the champions. It's just and like so, real steel. You've just got your robot fighters out there. Yeah, so it's also like sort of this is the real commentary, but it's just the two of us <laughs> talking, right, with no microphones. And so we're like, you know, we think about this game really well. I think we'd work really well together. We both got these giant teams. They had the European Alliance. We had Mog Squad that are getting very large. And what if we just took the best players from both teams and made a new team? So we did that. So we're like, okay, Kai, Dirk, Marco, the English, and the core of Mog Squad, and the core of Mog Squad form Godzilla. That's what we did. And so we're a pure online testing team because we have three hub, we have two hubs in Europe which can play with each other. So they did some testing offline, but in America, it's like I'm in New York and I have actual no one near me, and you know Scott Johns is off somewhere else, and so on. And so we're running the format, and red is just by far the strongest color. 
there's you can play red black, you can play red green. It's invasion, so you kind of have to play a lot right. of colors. So you can play red. This is invasion block construct. Right. right, right. So like only two things you you can play red green. You can play red black. You can play red black blue if you want to play control. But all these decks are heavy on red removal, and we're not sure what else you can do. And the rest of the field reached the same conclusion as us there. But now is this is this the yeah. tournament that like Sean McEwen writes about the Rocket Shoes deck? Yes. Before the Pro Tour, and that ends up. So what what was that about? I, I remember that, and I remember publishing the article that he wrote. Yep. Uh, this red green haste deck essentially. Right. Uh, what 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 was the story there? The story there is that people knew that red green and red black were the natural things to do, but nobody could agree on a bill. And this was back before you didn't talk before a Pro Tour, right? That article was weird, not because his deck was good or he could build a good deck. There are plenty of people who could build a good deck. It was weird that because he wasn't with anybody who he wanted to advance. He just found a really good build of Red Green and just published it online in the open for everyone to look at. It, it was, was ridiculous. It was great for traffic of the Neutral Ground website. Oh, no, no, no. no. It, was, it, it, it did some great stuff. But now everybody has this much faster, leaner, slick build of Red Green right. that's very close to the correct build. Right. And so now everybody knows that you can build it this way. And it's very hard to beat it even knowing what it is. Right? Like, it's just... You can't build a red black deck that's that strong against it. You can beat it, but only like 55, maybe 60% style for the match. You build a larger red green deck, you'd think you'd have the advantage. It turns out, no. You just die. How, how close was <laughs> this to the first day of the Pro Tour that this article. I forget. I think it was a few weeks. Yeah, it's like it was two, like, two to three weeks. Yeah, something right? like that. Yeah. Two to three weeks. So you had enough time. And so we knew that red green was going to be even bigger because this build's really good. And it turns out the ABU, who put four people into this top eight, basically just played Rocket Shoes. Their innovation with Rocket Shoes was things like, I don't have to take damage when I play Abundance and then tap mana. <laughs> also, a team of players with a long and storied history yes. in Magic the Gathering. To be clear, Brian Hegstead did not cheat. <laughs> All right. I will leave it at that. Uh, uh, but no, um, the, the story I heard afterwards uh, was that they didn't know whether Abundance was good against our deck because they had never tested it while taking damage. <laughs> so they just didn't know. And we knew they should bring it in and were testing, expecting it to come in, and they just left it out because they weren't sure. Because they knew that I wasn't going to let them not take damage. But, so the innovation, it was John Omarod, it was not me. Like, right. people, it's the kind of thing where if you play the deck, everyone just assumes if you're a deck builder that you did it, and I haven't been able to shake this. I keep saying the same story over and over. It doesn't matter. Right. But John, John has the core idea. He says, let's play white-blue. Let's play all the protection red creatures. Let's play Galena's Knight. Let's play Voice of All. And so far, I'm with him. It's just this because that doesn't have much power. And then he says, let's play Crimson Acolyte's main. Crimson Acolyte is a 1-1 for two mana with protection from red that can grant protection from red for a mana to other creatures. So... In the sideboard? Yeah, it's a weird sideboard card. In the main deck, you're insane. Right? It just doesn't... Like, what the hell are you doing? But it, it, we realize, no, this card just beats people. Because you put down Crimson Acolyte on turn two or three. You never have to expose a creature to a removal spell. And they've got, like, 12 dead cards in their deck, and it's game one. What, what percentage of the field would you say was that was red or some version of a red deck like some red plus yeah. x in the field 85 90 it was nuts essentially there were the three decks that we found right uh that were playing that deck 
there was us playing white blue and no one else right. like actual no one else a handful of people played random stuff but they all lost because the random stuff was bad and there was this very fringy uh esper deck that played like teferi's moat and was very controly and we knew that was a possibility so we put our blocks on the sideboard to be able to remove the moat specifically that was the card we were afraid of there with the last slot um and we were just but like almost everyone was playing the deck um the entire rush and then like fujita and a handful of other people found this blue black control deck that we just didn't think was a thing and somehow managed to get through the tournament i'm never touched the matchup so i'm not sure if he was just playing great or if he found a build that specifically beat the specific things out there or he got fortunate or some combination thereof like he's a great player but i don't know like he um he got all the way to the finals with it. So he dispatched multiple people in the top eight. But so so we had this main deck, which is impossible to build wrong once you reach Crimson Acolyte because it's literally 10 and all fours. <laughs> like, sorry, or rather 10, 10, 10, so 10 islands, 10 planes, four coastal towers, and then just four of every card you could possibly play in the main deck of this deck and nothing else. So it's Factor Fiction, Exclude, Repulse, Absorb, and then the 20 creatures you can play, which is Meddling Mage, uh, <laughs> Stormscaper Apprentice. Oh God! And the twelve pro red creatures. By the by the way, this is my f I think. Right, because Apprentice is how you lock down their yeah. carbon chameleons and other which which can change colors and all the other big creatures that you can't actually deal with. Right. I I think the solution is probably my all time favorite deck name. Yes. And, and I, I think it, it 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 flies in the face of a lot of great deck names. It doesn't have a pun. It's not named after a breakfast cereal. I mean, maybe Sherlock Holmes would have the solution for breakfast, but the 7% solution. Right. But, uh, <laughs> you know, like, it's, it, it just doesn't fall in the category. It just was, it was the right deck for this. Right. Meta and it was the right name. And the moment it was said, we knew it instantly. So we didn't have it coming in because the last thing you think about during development is what are we going to name this thing? <laughs> Right, it's also the kind of name that's like you can't, you know, you can't choose your own nickname. You can't just walk into a store as much as this actually happened and say they call me Johnny Magic. You have to let someone else choose your nickname. So we're sitting there, literally sitting at the deck list, and I'm staring at, you know, Brian Selden and Scott Johnson. I'm like, what are we gonna call this? And we're like, well, I think we write Holy Pakula on the deck list. There's some standard, not interesting name. It's just lame. Because we don't care. It's just we're gonna. Like, and I literally walk in the same. I'm like, say, I'm here to win. Let's go book a format. Let's go win a Pro Tour, which I have never thought going into a Pro Tour before or since. I've never felt like that. Wow. I knew this was special. You know, I knew this was the time. I also was the only time I came to Japan on Tuesday. I went to a hotel room. Where I just took a Walkman. I listened to music. I didn't think about magic. I was just, I'm just going to get rid of jet lag. I have no other task here. This deck is ready. And we just scout. And we do anything. If I'm wrong, I lose. So you were able to get completely in the flow for this event. You yeah. were just able to be in a complete I was just state. exactly there. I was playing at a completely different level than I've played before or since, I think, in, on many levels. I, this is one of the things that's determined that Pro Tours were so much, especially back then with no limited, so um, you just played all the rounds in the same format. Justice was served. <laughs> like, I got exactly what I did. Like, if I'm going to win one tournament, it's, you know, this or New Jersey, and I know exactly why I lost New Jersey. Right. Which we're not going to get into right now, but I know exactly <laughs> but where it involves I lost a that. player with a long and storied career in Magic Yes, it does. <laughs> and we know exactly what long and storied thing he did, but we're just not getting into that today. So, <laughs> so 
I now now let me yeah. ask you a question. Yeah. <clears throat> You're going into this. Yeah. Is there any sort of like? Do you feel like? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're making a joke about it, but you yeah. felt like you got cheated out of Pro Tour Secaucus. I know it. I mean, I didn't yeah, know. Were... I didn't know yet, but I now know. Did you Did you know it when you were going into Tokyo? I had a feeling, but I didn't know for certain. I didn't know the method yet, for example, right. at the time. Right. I learned it later. Right. Yeah. And so did you, uh, I, I mean, was that, was that something that was in the back of your mind? Or, or are you able to go to an event, you know, you talk and, and just say, okay, all events are past events and I'm just here right now playing magic. I was, I was thinking about it only in the sense of block constructed is my, this is my boat. This is my world. You're all just living in it. Yes, I have three top 16s, right? Like, I just, this is, this is my time. I am doing this. I am locking this down. This is mine. I'm not going to let slip through my fingers again. Yeah, absolutely. But like, this, is, this is time. But, like, I didn't, I don't think I was thinking too carefully about New Jersey specifically. It was sure. just, like, this is, yeah. my, this is it. Yeah. Like, because you know you have it. Like, literally, I walked into that tournament and thought, I do not know what 60 cards plus 15 card sideboard Anyone could plausibly present where I am a dog. Like, yes, you could build my deck and just not put Crimson Acolytes in it, but that would be insane. Like, assuming no one else found anything like this and built a deck that just cares about the mirror, we've all agreed to not test the mirror, to not think about the mirror, the mirror does not exist. If we face each other, we just improvise. And we're all just going to play the best deck against everybody else, and no one else is going to have this, and if that's true... This deck's actually pretty good in general. And after sideboarding, I had the hate for whatever colors you're running. So even if game one is a little problematic against a deck like Vegeta's, for example, or could be, doesn't matter. Right. I'll just make it work. And I just had all the confidence in the world because, like, we thought about everything that could happen in this format. It's like block construction is the only way you can do this. So you think about everything you could possibly build. And then we went through, you know, full searches to say, okay, what cards can we find? We found great sideboard tech, cards no one else could even consider. Like, no one else in this tournament, I think, even considered that someone might play Pure Reflection. <laughs> right? Because, like, no one thinks it's a white creature deck in the first place. So, funny story about Pure <laughs> Reflection. Yeah. I recently got housed by that card yeah? in a game of Commander, where <laughs> my opponent was playing an Enchantress deck, okay. and two of the cards he played were pure reflection, which is what? What does that cost? White, white, white two. White. Oh, it's white two. White two. Um, at, at the beginning of your turn or something. It's when, make, it, when when you play a creature, you sacrifice all you, your reflection dies, and you get a new reflection with X X where X is its converted mana cost, and you get to pay zero to destroy target reflection, so you can yes. like destroy a reflection to make a new reflection or something. Yeah, you're yeah right. That's the important part here. Right. Because my opponent then played Unnatural Selection, which is a blue one enchantment that, for one, lets you turn a creature into any creature type you want. Okay. And so he makes the entire board, has enough mana to make the entire board into reflections, and then for zero mana each, destroy them. Oh, yeah. So if you don't control a reflection, you get a reflection, right? Right, right yeah. So, so... The, what, I, what we were thinking was much simpler. Was if you get it, it was specifically for a deck like Fujita's yeah. or a red version of that deck, right? So that we assumed that we try color, but it still works. The idea was they're counting on their removal spells to exhaust a deck like mine. Right. 
but they don't play creatures. So they don't get any benefits out of this. So all we have to do is play Pure Reflection, and then every time we play a creature, I get a creature which has different mana costs, so they can't void. Which is specifically one of the things we were worried about, because like all our cards cost two. And now, if they spend a card on this card, we just play another creature, we get our production back. If not, this thing's going to kill them. Because <laughs> their deck doesn't actually do anything for a very, very long time. So it was the perfect answer. And we knew it was like not that big a portion of the field, but this is just exactly what we needed. It was actually just an amazing hate card along the, li- along the lines of our Gainsays and our Crusading Knights well, I'm and thinking our of... Acolytes. I'm thinking of a different reflection card. Yeah, I think so. I was like, yeah, I yeah, 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 you know, yeah. The way yeah, pure yeah. reflection works is that each yes, player yes. gets a reflection. I'm looking at pure right. reflection right now. Right, so yes. the idea was it's symmetrical. So if you played it, you'd get creatures, but they get creatures. But if they don't play any creatures, they don't get any creatures. So, like in the final against Vegeta, he's got like six creatures in his deck, and he sideboarded most of them out. So pure reflection is just a I have a creature that never dies, but they just constantly play new creatures. Uh, so, like, uh, Omarod built the deck, I built the sideboard, basically. And we walk in with this deck. And it's day two, I'm at about eight and one. The deck's doing really well. I'm feeling great. And then Patrick Chapin walks up to me. And he says, I love your deck, but your name is terrible. <laughs> this deck should be called The Solution. Wow. And the, I missed this when I was doing Patrick yeah. Chapin's Hall of Fame accomplishments. I would have mentioned it. <laughs> yes. 100% him. Credit where credit is due. And I'm there. I just look at him and I say, yes. Because <laughs> once it's said out loud, you know he's right. Right. So it's just, yes, this deck is hereafter known as the solution I dub thee. And we're done. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so good. Oh, my God. <laughs> So, uh, a card people have seen a lot. You know, we just had a modern Pro Tour uh, Mythic Championship. I apologize. Uh, and um, we saw a lot of Meddling Mage card. That is a very tricky card to use. This is a card that you said you you had some... We were talking about Soul Reads in the, in the car yeah. earlier today. And you said, oh yeah, Tokyo. I had some Soul Reads in Tokyo with Meddling Mage. Yeah, so in testing, we talked about the hypothetical, obviously, a lot of what do you meddling mage in what situation? And we thought about the... the, the well, you have this narrow card or you can force people down, right? Because you right. have the Crimson Acolytes, because you have the voices... Which makes it even better, the right? So like if they're playing black, like you, take, you name their black removal spells in the format. Right. You name Void a lot, because now you can wipe out both of those cards with Void, so you just name Void, which goes through, which goes through protection. So now, like, their best way out of you swarming the board to protect red creatures is gone. So this was standard. You also did... Um, there's a blue-black... Uh, high, uh, split car, uh, split card or something that like you also named a lot. There's, there's, um, I forget what it was called, but like there's a few different standard tra- options. And for every deck, we had our standard like here's what you do against the red against each deck, and you all was always you name the removal. It's what removal spell do you want to name? And then I'm just dialed in, and I just look at people, and I've been winning. And I'm just like, I don't need to name the removal spell, as long as I disrupt your motion right now. I can win, and I think I know what your problem. I just I have a feeling I know what you're holding, and so I have literally in zero games done this in testing. Not <laughs> once did I do this to a person, even to try it out. I just stare at someone in a future match, and I go turn two metal maze, and I say Nightscape familiar on the play, and he's got a just a tap black blue black red black land or something. It's just 
he looks at me with this look of horror. Right? Like, I mean, I, he's like, I just, you can't see my face right now, but it's just a matter of like, what just happened to me? How did he know? And the answer was, it's not that I knew for sure, although I suspected, because yeah, you kept the hand for a reason, and you didn't do anything on turn one, and blah, blah, blah. It was more that I can beat your non-familiar draws. Right. Like, if you take time out to kill this thing, to get your familiar, yeah, it's, I'm fine. And if you don't, you don't have a familiar. So either way, it's okay. And he says, points the land and says, go. <laughs> right? Which was like, means I'm right because otherwise he would have mulliganed like there are even cases where I know they have both familiars and I'm just like the red familiar doesn't matter right it doesn't do anything relevant it's the black familiar that does anything right it has an act it does something on the board it reduces the cost of spells that matter I'll just name one of the two familiars because I think this just wins me the game and I did stuff like that the entire time I'm just naming cards I've never I never named in testing well what was the Chris Benefell situation so the Chris Benefell situation wasn't Meddling Mage, it was Voice of All. Oh, so this okay. is another first time I've never done this in testing, which was name, not name red against a red deck without a Crimson Acolyte. So we're in the middle of game, I think it's three or, game, game two, three or four, I forget which. I don't sideboard, so it doesn't even matter. Uh, against red-green, we just had our best 16 to start with, because we expected it to be half the field, and it was. But we'll just play the best deck against them, including the Crimson Acolytes, and we'll sideboard against everyone else, and we'll waste no storage. Like, we thought about, like, could we improve? The answer is no. We just can't improve. So, I draw Voice of All in the middle of a game, and he's been sitting there, he's got, like, five cards in his hand. And I think about what's happening, what he's played, and I think to myself, okay, if he's not holding Thornscape Battle Mage, hell, if he's not holding two Thornscape Battle Mages, his gameplay makes no sense. <laughs> he's not holding four lands. He would have cast his other spells. It has to be. And so I just look him in the eye, and I put Voice of All down, and I say green. <laughs> and he just has the same look of the people with the meddling mage. And he looks at me and he says, did you just say green? I say, yes, I said green. And just look of horror on his face. Like, I know I've got at least two. <laughs> I later found that I think it was three. But like, yeah, I know. That's his entire hand is lands and Thornscape Battle Mages. And it completely wins me the game. And until that point in the semifinals, I had never done it, not even in testing. That's great. Yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> so now talk to me about you. So you play in the finals. You play against Siyoshi Fujita. Yeah. Both of you future Hall of Famers. He's the first Japanese player to uh, go that far into a magic tournament at that moment. Um, what was that experience like? I mean, you, you, you know, that's, I mean, you talked about this sort of team Godzilla. I mean, like clearly all the emotion in the room has to be on Siyoshi Fujita's side there. So I know that, you're in Tokyo, right? I know, I know that the room is rooting for him, but one thing is I know I've done something amazingly cool as well. So I, I know that there's this other story that's also pretty cool. Oh, I remember reading about it at home. I remember yeah. being home and reading, you know, Toby Walker, Josh Bennett, or whoever was there covering the event, you know, writing about the solution and talking about the, you know, pure reflection in the sideboard and all that yeah. kind of cool stuff. And, and I know that, so part of it is a sort of, I know that either way, this is a great pro tour, right? I finished second at least. Uh, if, if I don't win, Fujita does, and he's great. 
Right. right? Like, awesome. he'll have earned it. He'll have played another original deck. He'll win the, he'll be the first Japanese Pro champion in Tokyo. Like, I don't even necessarily mind that much. But also sort of, and in a real way, sort of, the good guys have won. ABU put four players in the top eight playing the same generic deck that was in half the field with no innovations whatsoever. And the two of us playing decks no one even thought was viable have vanquished everybody else, and now we're playing the kind of, not mere matchup, but the kind of, like, the two weird metagame decks are up against each other in a matchup that neither of us has thought about at all, <laughs> or the fact that we played in the Swiss one time. And we're going to see who wins this, and I have no idea what's going to happen. And so talk about, talk about his deck. You said he, he was playing blue-black, so he's playing, like, Phyrexian Scuda and Yeah, Scuda, Scuda and Rats were, like, his ways to win in terms of killing you. His real way to win was Jagmoth's Agenda. So the idea was, I will grind you out one card on one card, one card on one card, not die, not die, not die, rats you to gain a little bit of card advantage. Factor fiction, of course. But the real way I win is I play Yagmoth's Agenda, and then I just play all the cards in my graveyard again. And that's good enough, and I win, and maybe I recoil the agenda at some point, maybe I don't, but... So really a true card advantage deck. A true card advantage deck. Purely patient, you know, managed to grind me out in the Swiss because my draws were not quite up to it, and I just didn't quite get there, but it was a really good match. And so we, we get to the, the final, and I, I look at my opening hand, no, and then I have a one-lander. It's like, well, I can't throw this away. He's playing a grind deck. And, like, if I draw a second land, it plays cards forever because my deck's all twos. It's like, what am I going to do? I can't throw this away. It's like heat. I draw a card for my second turn. Go. He plays Ravenous Rats. <laughs> Discard a card. I draw a card. Go. Still no land. He plays a second. He plays another land and a second Ravenous Rats. Discard another card. I think the first card was Crimson Acolyte, but I forget. And then, like, now I'm out of Crimson Acolytes and I'm discarding real cards. But I've got so many copies of all... I've got so many different random creatures, it's like, it all doesn't even matter. Like, it's like... I, it's easy to just... The, the prioritization is easy. Queen of Nine is a blank 2-2, two -two, so I just discard the, the crap. I draw. Go. He plays the third Ravenous Rat. <laughs> Tax for two. Okay. And I remember this now because I'd forgotten it earlier when we were talking about this story. I draw Coastal Tower. If we attacked land, I say go. Of course you do. Of course I do. It's like it's like Ghostbusters. You're like, please, please let me get a land. And as you're drawing, you're like, but not Coastal Tower. And oh no, it's Coastal Tower. Oh, and I even <laughs> Yeah, so I even talked about this in my the specific situation in my report from the previous Pro Tour in Chicago, where I top aided but didn't win. Where I said to myself, it's time to top eight a Pro Tour. Before I walked in, because I knew I had a really good deck. And then I top rated the Pro Tour, and then Rents rated Brian Kibler with the version of the deck that beats mine. Right. And kind of despaired and, like, was in a lot of trouble and probably lose anyway, but, like, didn't play great in the quarterfinals. And then I actually, in my tournament report, because I had tested a bunch of White Blue as well, used the metaphor of saying, let's top eight a Pro Tour being the equivalent of needing to cast Giraffe of God. Knocking your deck and saying, land please, and drawing Coastal Tower, you should have been more specific. Yes. Like, I, that was written down. And this is the next Pro Tour, and I literally go, I need a land, and I draw Coastal Tower. And I'm like, this is, a, this is terrible. So I play the Coastal Tower, and I say go. He untaps, taps me for three, plays the land, says go. I untap, and I'm like, going this night? <laughs> like, random choo choo does nothing, but blocks your, rocks your, your rats? I think he says okay. I didn't, you know, maybe I take another hit first, but like, I just start playing creatures, and he stops attacking me. 
and they're not dead. So I was like, okay, the damage didn't really matter. Then I'm like, voice of all. So things start resolving. I start attacking. Turns out he's flooded. He's got nothing. Never drew an agenda. I win the game, and I just have the, the Randy Buehler at Pittsburgh face of, yeah. oh my god, that happened? <laughs> like, it's exactly the same face if you look at the videos. And I'm just like, that's the hard game. That's the game where I'm stuck with Crimson Acolytes. Yeah, I was just saying, that's the game where you have cards for the rest of the field. Right, I have cards for the rest of the field. I stuck on a one-lander for multiple turns, and it didn't matter. Now I just need two of the next four with my sideboard, and I'm bringing in four disrupts, three gainsays, Three pure reflections and three crusading knights against blue black. Pure control. Yeah. By the way, the card I was thinking of when you were talking about pure reflection was Spirit Mirror for some right, reason. Right. Yeah. Was that, that was the card I conflated. That makes sense. They so, both make reflections. Right. So I'm literally bringing in thirteen. My entire sideboard, except for the two R blasts, and the reason the R blast on the sideboard was specifically for Deferi's moat, but mostly because I was like, well, I only need thirteen cards to do everything I need to do. What could possibly go wrong? We like, just the fairies mode could be in some deck somewhere. Yeah. Which actually happened, by the way, on day one. The last round of day one, I actually faced that deck, brought in Aura Blast and won the match because of Aura Blast. Nice. So it does happen. Uh, so after game one, he didn't know how he, basically he, we learned later, just didn't know how he could possibly win against a 13-card sideboard. Oh, wow. He just despaired. He doesn't have the giant blow-you-up cards like Void because he's not playing red. So he doesn't know he didn't know what his path to victory was, other than just like hold on for dear life and just try to bleed him out. And so he did exactly the thing you shouldn't do, which is to take out his creatures. Oh no. Because now, like the one way you actually we now know, the way you lose is he takes he takes the Phyrexian Scudo. And now he has a five five, and maybe he just kills me. Because he's pretty good at killing stuff for a while, so he doesn't die very quickly. But now that he doesn't have the Scudas, he's counting on actually killing me with Ravenous Wrath or something like that after, like, Yagmoth is jetting me for 15 turns. Now, he's basically got no chance because my entire deck is just full of threats and counterspells that are cheap to fight them through and, like, cards that, like, can be turned against him and just there's nothing he can do about it. You know, I've taken out my excludes, my repulses, my factor fictions, you know, all this stuff, it doesn't matter. And my Echonacolites, all stuff doesn't matter and just brought in a, a horde of stuff. And, yeah, he's just stuck. Um, and it's not like it's a terrible matchup on reflection either way. Right. But, like, he just didn't give himself a chance. It's an important thing. Like, if you did a terrible matchup, just keep the creatures that might kill them. Keep the Jizumsons in your deck. <laughs> Jizumson kills people. It happens, right? Like, you never know. Uh, but this was actually another thing that, like, we'd never done in testing. So, all testing, we tested a ton post cyborg because we knew we had to. Factor Fiction never left the deck. It never occurred to me it would leave the deck. Because Factor Fiction is amazing. With the second Pro Tour, it was legal. We're playing blue-white partly because we get to play Factor Fiction properly, right? Blue has this thing going for it. And so one of the great things about a team is they can do your testing for you. And back then, people didn't mess around. And it's blocked, so they just had the ability to build everything. But also, they, you know, we've all seen all these decks before. So, we, and again, sleep, jet lag, all these things are super important. So I make the top eight. I'm up against a red-blue-black uh, control deck in the quarterfinals. I think to myself, okay, that's uh, kind of worrisome. That's a deck that's, like, a little scarier than most, but I get to play four sideboard games. It's pretty good. Whereas red-green, I sideboard zero cards that are actually catching up because it's in the in the top eight. So my teammates, especially the, the British, say, go to sleep. Don't worry about it. We'll test all night because we don't need to sleep afterwards. Who cares? We'll get back to you. We'll tell you what to do. I go to sleep. 
I don't think about the matchup. I come back and they say, take out Factor Fiction. Wow. And I say, what? Wait, wait what? <laughs> I right? trust you, but what? <laughs> no, 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 I don't, I trust you, but I don't trust you until you explain. <laughs> wait, what? And they say, you know, if you try to play this game where you sit there casting spells while mana develops, you get into this late game situation, he still can grind you out most of the time. You can't really play the card advantage game with him effectively. You lose those games. So Factor Fiction isn't really doing anything for you. Even though it seems like it's a good idea to sit back on like absorb and factor fiction and if you can't absorb if you do nothing to absorb you factor fiction or something like that. It's just not productive. What you want to do is you want to keep playing threats to the board. So he has to spend all his removal spells and he just runs out. Right. Because he doesn't you know, only void sweeps and you can you can play around void much better if you have a variety of cards. And also pure reflection gets much better because now you just have all these creatures in your deck. And I think about it, and yeah, I'm bringing Crusading Knight, so I have a four to replace the four. He's just right. I want to be tap out deck most of the time, and then eventually sit back on Absorb because Absorb's still awesome. Right. Right? And bring in Gain, Say, and Disrupt, but, like, you know, not worry about the whole... But like, be able to deploy stuff to the... Right. Board. What do I do if he doesn't do anything? Smile. Right. Right? At that point, who cares? So I sideboard this way, and I play the games. It just feels so easy to 3 him. Right? Like, it's sort of, I've solved the matchup because my teammates solved the matchup for me. And now I know how to implement it because it's obvious. Now that you say it, there's so much, so much more of this. Like, now that it's occurring to me, I'm ready. Like, I've done all my iterations. And now when the right thing's pointed out, there it is. And the final, I do instantly look at Vegeta's list. Doing it again. Of course. It's exactly right. Vegeta has to grind me out so slowly over time. Keep playing threats. Play cheap counter spells. Get into a winning position. Force him to, force, force him to win. Force through the cards that matter. The right way to do it. And I threw it in the 15 minutes. <laughs> and you got a lot of high fives from the crew the high the crew specifically thanked me afterwards yes actually <laughs> I, I have enjoyed some fast top eights in my they day. always they, they always root for the aggro deck because they just want to get out of there yeah right? they got paid the same either way right <laughs> that's awesome so what was that so you know i mean i i you know i know you you from the earliest days of magic but i mean that's you know a good Six or seven years that you've been playing Magic at that point. You've been to a lot of Pro Tours. What was, what was that moment like for you to have come in with this, this thing? You know, not only, you know, obviously you, you've given credit to General Word, but you, you were part of building this team that put you in this position. You built off of multiple successes leading up to it. What, what was that experience like for you uh, in terms of, like, uh, a validation? Yeah, it was total vindication. It, it just you've devoted your life to playing this game and now you have that Pro Tour win because whether it's fair or not, the difference between I won a Pro Tour and I didn't win a Pro Tour is night and day. Even before the Hall of Fame right. raised that issue again, it's just completely different. Like Even though the prizes in the near term weren't that, weren't that different, the title meant so much. And it was just a weight off my shoulders. I've won one. I've done the thing. You know, I, I, I made it. And, I mean, Bob Meyer, the, the player of the year, you know, someone I greatly looked up to and admired and still, still admire and look up. He's great. Yeah. yeah. The great one, specifically. Yes. He shakes my yeah. hand. He says, literally says it's about time. Oh, And wow. he shakes my hand and he hands me the trophy. And the Japanese go wild. Like, they're, they're, they're happy for Vegeta, but they're also happy for me. I'm signing meddling mages everywhere I go. 
Right. Don't tell Chris. <laughs> I know. I know. Everyone just thrilled. Like, it's just, it's the great happy ending, right? The good guys won. The bad guys lost. Yeah, the hometown hero didn't quite win the final, but we'll get there. Right. And they did. Right. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just three years later, uh, Kuroda wins uh, Pro Tour Kobe. Again, block constructed. Yeah. Playing, uh, playing Finley. We actually talked briefly about Fujita joining the team. Uh, yeah. It didn't quite work out. The time zones and language barriers are a nightmare. It didn't actually make sense. But like he was really eager and like he knew he had lots of great ideas. So it, it potentially made a lot of sense. Yeah. No, we, we thought he was great. And like it was a great experience playing against him both times. Has been since then. Yeah. No. He goes on he goes on to rack up former Pro Tour top eights. Uh, you know, he never he never gets the big win actually, but um puts up puts up more top eight. He, he ends up in the Hall of Fame, of course, as the first Japanese player in the Hall of Fame, fittingly. Right, and he made it anyway. But like, that's the that's the thing is that like we saw with the Hall, the difference in voting between I won a Pro Tour and I finished second in a Pro Tour or I finished fourth in a Pro Tour right. was night and day. Even though, you know, to a large extent, that's the happenstance, right? You get your one two shots unless you're Kai or something or John <laughs> or Paulo. Or Lewis, but like you know, most of us get you know our four or five shots, and so if we're you know at that point slightly better than the average top eight competitor at that point, which is really all you can really hope for, given these are the top players, right? You know, you're going to win that twenty percent of the time, and so you have my I have four shots. You know, I'm an under yeah, I'm I'm kind of at fifty fifty to to make one of them, which is pretty scary because if I hadn't. You know, if I'd lost that match, if I lost to Fujita, if I'd lost to Benefell, you know, plus if I'd lost to Benefell, I mean, and he'd gone on to win, I'd be like, God, I, I, there's a... Not again! <laughs> I know, oh God. No, um, there's just the terrible, so U.S. Nationals, right? So I'm playing for top eight with uh, Replenish, and I paired up against Tom Guevin. Another player with this, not, not the same kind of storied history, but no, a very no. storied history. Yes. Uh, one, one of yeah. the great trash talkers of all Oh, time. God, yes. Uh, to the point where I have given him a warning for unsportsmanlike conduct for an event he was not playing in <laughs> yes. as a judge. So we sit down for the final round. He's playing uh, Mono Blue. And so he, we, we start to roll the die. He throws the die so far high in the air, it lands somewhere. We start arguing. There's an argument over whether or not it counts, what the number's going to be. It's just classic Levin the whole way through with, like, 20 people watching, right? Like, just nothing's ever easy. And I'm just preparing myself for the mental fight of I have to win the match and I have to deal with this shit. And I know that he's also, like, spending a lot of his mental energy on it, too, so I'm not even sure it's advantaging him. Right. But I know that, like, this is going to be one of those really weird, frustrating matches that I'm going to be so glad it's over when it's over. Um, and, it's like, sort of, it's my job to keep Tom Quinn out of this top eight, and it's my job to be in the top eight. <laughs> and then they announce the pairings are wrong, and they repair us. Oh, God. And it's Mike Long <laughs> playing Accelerated Blue. Oh, my God. And immediately sits down and says, you know that article you wrote about how to play Accelerated Blue against Replenish? Thank you so much. <laughs> by, by the way, <laughs> for all the things Mike is credited with, his ability to trash talk is historically oh, that was epic. Like, he's just warning. <laughs> he's just giving me information because now I know what he knows. So it's like, that was not a great idea. Right? Because I know exactly what he's going to do now. Because I know that 
he's smart enough to know that I was telling the truth and that he should follow the script, given that I am playing the deck I think Replenish is. But now I know exactly what he's going to do, and I know what he expects me to do. So it's kind of a giant leg up. But so Accelerated Blue, that was a deck with like Grim Monoliths right. and uh, Morphling. Right? Yeah, it's like one of these really interesting matchups where both sides have an argument that they can grind the other guy out, and like it's completely unobvious what to counter and how to sequence your spells, and it's really close. And so now I have to watch out for Mike Long for a different kind of action. I'm not worried about his trash talk. It's not going to get to me. But it's, yeah. just, it's my job to keep Mike Long out of this top eight. It's my job to... <laughs> I mean, I, I, at this point, I, I care more about not letting Mike Long in than getting in myself and being the one who let him in. And we play a, a, a detailed match. And it just, yeah, if I hadn't written that article, I would have won because it was really oh, hard to navigate on his side. You know, but he figures it out. He... He does, he makes good decisions. And I don't know, you know, we'll never know if he had aid from other skills of his right. during that match or not. Well, yeah, here's, here's the thing about yeah. anyone who has a history of cheating in the game. Yeah. They have an advantage yeah. whether or not they actually right, cheat half, at that time. Right. You've just talked about it. I'm keeping one of my eyes on his deck so he doesn't palm something. Right. Like, I can't think the proper way. Whereas he's either trying to cheat me and might succeed or just... Realize he's not going to cheat me, and it's 100% of his actions on how do I beat this guy. Right. Which I, is probably the latter, but you'll never know, but he still had that edge. Right. So, someone who has a reputation for cheating can also peacock a lot while they're playing the game and make you think about cheating and make you, you know, have a lot of exaggerated actions yeah. and a lot of game manipulations. And even if they don't do anything, you just have to yeah. put energy into that. I mean, that's one of the great unfairness. I'm confident he was cheating at that tournament. Yeah. I don't think he was necessarily trying to cheat me. But if you see his deck list, you know he was cheating at that tournament. Because he kind of just took out islands and put in brainstorms. Like, his <laughs> mana suddenly worked after doing that, which it didn't. So, he's too smart to do that and then shuffle fairly. Let's just put it that way. Okay. So, I knew, I was like, how did he fit the brainstorms in this deck? What did he take out? His deck's so tight. Oh, he just took out lands. Database cheating accusations. <laughs> I mean, proof by Bayesianism. Like, what would you do this if you were going to play fair? No. Right? Mike's too smart for that. Right. I mean, that's, that's, that's also the thing about Mike. Mike, was, Mike really was one of the game's great players. Yeah, he played a great match. Like, he, like, but independent of anything else that was going on, he made great decisions that entire match. He earned it. Like, I, I think I played well, too. I don't, I'm not regretting my big mistake. It's just, you know, I played it such that he had to have it. He had to sequence it correctly. You know... He did every, all, the whole time, and it was really impressive, and I, my hat's off. But then, you know, I'm, I'm just sitting around going, oh, my God, Mike Long just made the top eight because of me. He's going to represent the United States of America unless someone stops this from happening. And, yeah, I'm just, I have never rooted so hard for people I didn't actually know. I was like, come on, Aaron. You got to do this. You got to do this. It's all on you. You know, because, like, if you don't stop this guy, he's going to be on the team. And, and I'm going to feel so bad. I just remember, bail me out, Aaron. You got to bail me out. Yeah. I mean, that's the funny thing. But you I, did. Yeah, at that Nationals, I mean, Aaron was not a known quantity. Yeah. I had no idea who I was rooting for. I yeah. was just like, this guy is playing a cool deck. He's goofy. I like him. But more, you just got to bail me out, man. So this Aaron we're talking about is, of course, Aaron Forsyth. Yeah. And his his uh, angry hermit was it angry hermit? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was the deck that like sort of put him on the map, and probably ultimately leads to him becoming 
uh, a member of R&D. Yeah, and if he doesn't win that match, not only does he not become a member of R&D, America doesn't win Worlds. Right. Right. I, I 100% guarantee you that if Michael Long is on that team, <laughs> I mean, you can win six on two. You can't win seven on one. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> Let me ask you something. So um, you talk about this sort of impact uh, that writing has on you in that moment, right? Yeah. You, you, you're one of, in my mind, one of the seminal writers in magic history. Um, you've, you've been at every important stop along the development of magic theory, tournament reports. Um, you invent really like the, the, the set review in my mind. So like, uh, what, what's the role magic content has played in your life because it, it's really changed right magic content has evolved into some new thing now where it's streaming or it's videos or you know it's tiktoks or whatever <laughs> whatever new stuff people do but like I, I mean your your bread and butter was was the written word like what was your, what was your experience going into magic uh as someone who developed their writing skill through the game yeah no, it taught me how to write so i i, I would i was at college when i first got anything posted. So I'm in logic and rhetoric, like the freshman, here's how you write class. Getting C's, right? Slowly, they, they'll creep you up over the course of the term, right? They, they're like, you're a freshman, you have no idea how to write, like C, C, C plus, C plus, C plus. In a way that's like, wait a minute, there's no fluctuations. I actually did the experiments of where I, I'd spend like two hours and like work really hard on my one page thing one week. And then the next week I'd toss it off in 10 minutes and just the right, the, didn't change anything, right? And they just didn't care. <laughs> so I was like, okay, this is clearly completely, utterly bullshit. Like, there's nothing going on here. I didn't learn anything because, like, they're clearly, you know, they're filling the thing with red of all these little notes, but, like, none of them mattered. It didn't really teach you how to do anything. It was, like, preparing you to write other essays. Whereas you post something online, the very act of writing it, writing it having people read it, having them give you feedback, even just did they get it? Did right. they, how, what did they point to? What did they respond to? Even if you, you know, just comparing yourself to others, just knowing that you have to think about, am I proud of this? How do I feel bad about this? Like, even without feedback, it's just so great. Just to be a writer, every writer says, to be a writer, write. It's the only rule. And I learned how to write, for real, by just writing a ton. But it also taught me how to play. It wasn't just learning how to, and I didn't think I was a good writer, probably wasn't a good writer, I didn't think I did supposed to be writing articles online. Uh, my first article was that I was on a team called the Legion and Frank Cusimato, who runs the dojo somehow was on the email thread <laughs> where we were talking and I hit reply all because it was the early days of the internet and I was on a public computer. And I just wanted to like type the thing to the team and I just write out like brain, I brainstormed some deck lists on the spot and one of the 58 cards because I just didn't count properly because it was like, I wasn't, you know, I was at a, just at a computer at the, at the hallway in John Jay, because I didn't, I didn't have access to the internet otherwise. That, yeah, it was that old. And I'm, I'm just writing a thing to my team, you know, to explain what I think the type of thing that's going to happen. Here are some examples of things you might do that I've never tested. And then Frankie goes back and he's like, can I post this? Okay. I said, if you want, right? Like, dock yourself out. I don't care. Like, it's cool. And then people give me you know, good feedback. And like, that was really cool and helpful. And these are original deck lists. You should keep going. And I'm like, cool. And then, you know, when I get a chance to like, I have something to report, right? I have Turbo Savi to report. I write the article and he posts it on the front page. as new killer deck Turbo Savi in giant bold letters. And suddenly it makes my name. So it makes my name. It gets me like relationships in the community. It gets me talking to people. It gets me respect. But it also just teaches you how to play. 
not just teaches you how to write, because when you have to explain everything that you're thinking, you know what you're thinking, right? You think things out. You engage in deliberate practice, things that you just wouldn't do otherwise. And the dirty little secret, right, is that I won so much more because I was sharing all my secrets every step of the way <laughs> that if I hadn't otherwise, because now I know what they are and I know how they work, right? And I'm thinking carefully about this game. And it also gets me on these great teams, right? And so I have great allies. Right. But like, yeah, so, no, you Let's talk for a yeah. second, though. Turbos V is not a deck that maybe people listening will immediately understand what it is. And this, this is neither Turbo... Well, it is very Zvi. But, but Turbo is certainly used ironically here. Sure. It was more of a case of... It, it, it's, it's very specifically doing the one thing and doing a ton of it. It is Turbo in turns. Right. It is not Turbo in clock. <laughs> um, so the way Turbo V works was... Um, it took, so the development of Turbo V comes from... I'm sitting in, in class, bored, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, Dream Halls was labeled by Inquest as the worst card in the set Stronghold. But, like, it's just, bu- it's just, like, bugging me. Like, of course not. This card is, <laughs> let you play everything for free. How could this card not be good? So I say to myself, okay, I'm going to break Dream Halls. How do you break Dream Halls? This card wins the game when you play it. Because, of course, nothing costs any mana. So you should just win now, right? Like, there should be no questions. So how does that happen? And I just reason it out step by step. Okay. Every time I play a card, my hand gets bigger. Okay. How do I not just run out of cards? Well, game is blessing. How do I get the game blessing? How does the game blessing trigger? Ancestral memories. Okay, cool. We're start, we're getting somewhere. How do we, you know, not you know how do how do we get advantage cards? Oh, let's look through all the cards. Think about through all the cards in in the standard. Oh, meditate. Meditate only four cards. When I just choke on lands, yes, I will choke on lands. Oh, mana severance. If I have to do is cast mana severance first, get rid of all the lands in my deck, and now as long as my cards slowly draw me more than two cards per spell. Every card is blue except for the Gaze Blessings, and it turns out the Lotus Petals like actually cast my spells on my, my, my thing on time, and it also gives me a backdoor way to cast Gaze Blessing in order to get back in the game. And so, when I do it, I start doing this thing, and even though I'm shuffling constantly, once you get a large hand, you're, you have infinite redraws, right? You have to, like, the game could, in theory, slowly grind you down over time, but the probability of that is zero, right? It's not going to happen. So, I start doing test draws, and I play it out, and I figure out how it's done, and it, it works. It absolutely works. And eventually you have the kill of one lobotomy and one inspiration, so 5th edition rules. You can't, res- you can't wait for middle of a stack to resolve. The whole stack resolves at once. So you just do lobotomy and response inspiration you, and you have some memory lapses in case there's some funny business. But they draw two cards. You immediately lobotomy them before they can play either of them. You take the card that matters out of their deck. If the other card matters, because you have Dream Halls in play, you lobotomy them before they can find another card so you can play it. Again, you just keep doing this until they run out of cards with the inspiration decking them. <laughs> but it turns out that if you have to, like, redraw, go through your deck over and over again to redraw the same lobotomy and inspiration every time you want to draw two cards and the deck has still got 45 cards in it, this takes a while. So <laughs> it takes about 40 minutes to do. Uh, <laughs> so it's a, it's a slight problem. You, you have a fireball on the sideboard so that you can just continue to sack Lotus Petals and just fireball them out. That costs you a red card, so there's a, there's a blank in your deck that just costs you a card. It's a mulligan. Because you, like, you, you can use it to kill something early on if you need to, but like, that's not going to win you many games. Uh, but that's, and that's how you solve the problem of I'm about to run out of time. But 
yeah, so Game Gone takes 40 minutes. And the judges, like, aren't that happy about this necessarily, especially because if you go to time, you get five extra turns. So what happens in the tournament if you go into extra time, you start going off, and then 30 minutes later, you win? And, um... I remember yeah. this well. Yeah, and so... <laughs> The local judge, Tony, as your local the local judge Tony Perotti decided that he was going to unilaterally just impose the rule that you had five minutes to finish the turn <laughs> in extra turns, or the right. turn just ends. And I was furious. Like, there ain't no rule. <laughs> Dogs can't play basketball. No one said they can't. What's the problem? Right? And I understand the limitation, but because it's a part of it was just because, like, it's not fair. This is a forced win. Right? The other player is at fault for not conceding. Sure. You should adjudicate this game as I win. And instead, like, I think it was Zeb Gerwitz who was playing in a side event, and, like, I learned about this rule first. I was like, don't sign that sheet. That's bullshit. Yeah. Appeal all the way. Like, go ahead to the DCI, call him up, I'll get him on the phone. It's not how the rules work. And Tony's like, I'm kicking you out of this tournament hall if you don't shut up. Because, <laughs> like, you're challenging my authority, right? Yeah. Like, oh. And, like, he's right. Like, yeah. that's not what you do. Rules is rules. You can appeal it later. You know, just like it's just not it's just not reasonable to force me to modify my deck because right. someone else won't concede. Like, come on. But I mean, you know, it's rules is rules. If it wasn't if it was if it was extra turns, if I was time walking, it would in fact run out. So it's not that different. So I get it. Uh you are meditating, so you're skipping infinite extra future turns. But yeah, it doesn't matter. I had to answer endless questions about this. Like, you know, like people are like, Don't you lose all these turns from meditating? Like, you don't understand. There's no next turn. The game is ending. That's how the rules work. So many questions. Like the turn must be FAQs. Anyway, so yeah, it gets me on the map, and I go from there, and I build lots of other original decks, and everyone knows who I am, and it's great. Um, but, you know, without, without writing, you know, I wasn't, I was kind of an awkward kid. I didn't have many friends in the community that were, especially on the Pro Tour. Like, the cool kids were like these dead guy kids hanging out who were like, you know, Finkel and Pakula, and they David Price, and they didn't want to talk to me. And then this stuff got me to the point where I could talk to people, and that was huge. Right. You, you, got, to, you got to actually... Uh... Put your true self out there. I, I mean, I remember, I remember yeah. this actually, like as a revelation. Uh, you know, because I, I knew you for a long time. Obviously, we, we, we. I've always gotten along with you, but like, I felt like through your writing was the first time I knew you. Right, like that was the first time I was like, oh, okay, I have some insight into how Zv thinks and how Zv feels, and oh wow, Zv's really funny. Right, that's something I really remember as being. A revelation from from that writing that was the style of writing that i was doing was i am going to write how i think like i'm going to explain how i got from a to b which is exactly how you get good at the game by writing right like the the, the thing that people naturally write the thing that people want you to write if you just ask like the person who's trying to sell clicks is you know here's this deck here's this sideboard guide here's these facts you need to know they will make you a better magic player that'll just give you a deck and so I was always thinking to myself, I want to advance thinking about magic and explain how I got from A to B. And yes, I will give you the information. I will write the detailed sideboard guide at the end, but I'll also explain why and how I figured it out. Because that's what's really interesting here, right? That's what you should care about. That's what I wanted from other people's writing too. Right. Now, you, you, you still actually write quite a bit about magic. You'll write occasionally for Channel Fireball, but you, you, you actually just write on your own blog still about magic, about things that you're passionate about, about the London Mulligan rule, about uh, I, I, yeah, all I, sorts of stuff. Absolutely. I, I write a wide variety of esoteric cares. So I have my own my own blog. It's uh, Don't Worry About the Vaz. Same as my old dojo column. Is I kept the name. Which is uh, something that harkens back to The Matrix, right? Yes. Right. 
would you still have broken it if I hadn't said anything, right? <laughs> like, exactly. I just thought it was great. And some people tell me it's a bad title, and I'm like, I don't care. I love it. I'm sticking with it. I have brand, I have brand equity. So if, if, you, if you Google uh, on the mothership, I did an oral history of the Magic Dojo uh, for Wizards of the Coast. And I talked to Z and some other people who were seminal um, in, in this, these early days of magic writing about the dojo and its role. If you don't know what we're talking about when we talk about the Magic Dojo, you should definitely go read that. There's a lot of really fascinating people there who shared some stories with me, Z and Brian Hacker and Rob Hahn and Frank Kusamoto. Um, just, you know, it's just like this super cool time that you can't even imagine what it was like to suddenly have access to unlocking someone like Z's brain, um, and, and having people like Mike applying theory to magic and to have, you know, people from the other parts of the world chiming in and talking about decks they were playing locally and, you know, to have deck list published it was it was just such yeah, a i would just scour time. the thing yeah like every day and i contribute just for the honor of having done so and having built you know given back to the community it never occurred to anyone that people paid you for writing like what was this idea yeah. that came later no it was it was an amazing time and and i look back on it very fondly yeah so all right well thanks for doing this me doing this with me today zvi uh the only reason i'm cutting it short i could talk to you easily for another hour is zvi and i are going to go and draft uh, with Eric Klug and some other local San Francisco magic people. And we're going to be drafting the Pro Tour Cube, which is uh, means there's an opportunity for me to draft Voice of All and Beats V with it, which I'm really excited about. You can always get Baneslayer Angel, right? <laughs> You've some cards. <laughs> I'm excited to see where it comes out. Um, share, share your blog if you want to, to let people to right. know where it's, it is. So it's that's V T H E Z V I. Uh, dot wordpress.com this v is also my twitter handle if you want to follow me uh you can also google don't worry about the vase and that'll take you straight to it um and yeah it, it's not necessarily it's not about magic it's, yeah. it's maybe 20 you know 25 percent magic uh it varies i write about rationality i write about like optimizations of all kinds you know sometimes i'll show food recommendations and guides sometimes i'll talk about magic strategy i'll have deck guides there i have thoughts about magic policy I have game theory, game design stuff is on there as well. Uh, but like, it's just, this is what I'm thinking about. This is what I want to put out there in the world. This is how I want to advance the conversation. And I love to talk to people on that blog. I love to get engaged in the comments. So I, I strongly encourage you to, to check it out. Awesome. Is the Grand Unified Theory of Pizza up yet? So I know there's a, there, there's a, there's. <laughs> well, we, we yeah. Zvi and I have been exploring New York right. City pizza. Right. And so you've been talking about for a while about writing the... the... So there's, there's two pizza articles there. The first pizza article is the, the, the new one. I'll start with the new one, which is literally just, here are the 10 pizza places that are the saddest if they closed. Like, not <laughs> these are the best pizza places. They are not the best pizza places. Some of them are the best pizza places, because obviously it'd be very sad if the best pizza place closed. Like, if Castell closed, it'd be very sad. But... These are the 10 that, thanks to where I live and my personal history and my personal experience, I would be sad if they closed. If you're in the area or it appeals to you, check them out. Here's what you order. Here's how I found them. Here's my history with it. Because that's what actually matters in someone's guide. Right? I don't want to hear what your scientific studies said were the best pizzerias. That's just you putting out a listicle. I want to hear what you love, why you love it, how you interact with this thing. And the other article I was a... Uh, more vital to me 
which was a while ago, which was my restaurant guide part two, the guide to pizza, which does not contain any locations whatsoever, but it talks about here's how you know. Here's what's good in a pizza. Here's the various types of pizza. Here's how they're good or bad. Here's how you walk up to a pizza place, look at it, evaluate it, know if it's going to be good. Here's how you test it. Here's how you exploit it. Here's everything you need to know about pizza. And I feel like that is an indispensable thing, especially if you don't live in New York. Because if you don't live in New York, you can't necessarily walk down the street, pick a random pizza place and, and be okay. And get a hot slice. At all. Right. You get Heating up a slice doesn't count. We go very, very deep uh, on the metagaming of pizza. <laughs> yeah. And the best part about it is that since I wrote that article, which was only a few months ago, right, my favorite pizza place to eat at right now isn't even on that list because I hadn't had a chance to try it yet. I hadn't been to Prince Street Pizza at the time. Right. And now Prince Street is not the saddest place if it closed because it's just not that close to where I live. But it's probably number two or three. Yeah. That place is amazing. Yeah. And they're the only place I know that can reheat pizza and it doesn't ruin it. Like somehow their square slices, you can reheat them and it's fine. It's because they haven't actually fine. cooled down very much. They actually just, just, a little touch, they so just yeah. bring it back up because right. it's in the oven very little. It's clearly just going straight up all the time. Yeah. Like there's no hesitation. So yeah. yeah, it just works. Whereas I've learned... If you if you if they will cut you a slice and hand it to you without reheating it and you're at the pizza place, great. You just buy slices. Otherwise, order pie or go home. <laughs> like pie is not that expensive, right? Like just order the whole pizza and share it with friends. What's the problem? Yeah. This summer we're going to be uh, investigating Brooklyn pizza pretty thoroughly. So hopefully this will prompt a new blog post. V, thanks again for being on Topic Magic. I am sure this will happen again uh, over the summer. Uh, hope everyone enjoyed it. Michael J. Flores, we miss you. Uh, sorry you're not here in San Francisco with us, but uh, I'll be back next week with Michael J. Thanks for listening.